0: All right. Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 2 Kings. And while you find that, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, we preach expositionally in this class. We preach through books. Um, but I've got this week and next week, and I don't want to crack into chapter 9 of Hebrews yet. Um, so we won't be back in Hebrews until August, actually. So this week and next week, we've got a little break. We've got our summer speakers, and uh, we'll do some assorted passages uh, in the summertime, and then we'll back, be back in Hebrews in uh, early August. So if you would start with me in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 7, it's a very uh, short and encouraging narrative. Uh, this is God's word, 2 Kings 4, verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her son's, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, the American uh, poet and uh, liberal uh, thinker, uh, Henry David Thoreau, said that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And go to the grave with the song still in them. That's often uh, attributed to T.S. Eliot. It's not. It's Thoreau. Most men lead lives of of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. And uh, that's a that's a fairly familiar quote. I mean, a lot of people have heard that before. But it's kind of easy uh, to miss the freight of the word desperation. I mean, desperate is a is a very powerful word. When somebody is desperate, that means they're full of despair. That means they're full of despondency. That means hopelessness. To be in despair is to feel a sense of hopelessness. And so that's quite an honest thing for a liberal uh, thinker to say uh, that, uh, that uh, we all lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in us. Um, that's, that's pretty sad. Um, but it's, at least it's honest. I mean, if there's not a hope beyond this life and if there's not a hope in this life, then what is there but a sense of desperation, a sense of hopelessness that's got to emerge and rumble in the soul? And the Bible has a great answer for it. Um, and I'll tell you too, many of us feel, even Christians feel senses of um, desperation when things pop into our lives, right? Things that uh, traumatize us. Uh, relational things that we can't fix. Uh, a child who is uh, acting recklessly and you can 't help them and control them that, that really can bring a real sense of uh, despondency into your life and um, Let me show you some pictures of desperation that I think will apply to this story. I mean we can obviously relate to the story because moments of moments of hard issues come in our lives that make us feel desperate all right but but a a bitter grinding Desperation that you can't climb out of is something that this lady is going through. And here's some uh, rather famous pictures. Um, you know, that's a picture, you've seen that picture before from the depression. I mean, <clears throat> what is this woman to do? Here, that's a famous picture. This is less famous, another angle of it. But there she is. I mean, you see her tattered sleeve. You see these dirty little children. And what is she to do? Um, how about this? That's water. That's, the, that's, the, that's what you cook in cook with and drink. That's rainwater from the backyard. Um, how about this? I mean, that is bitter poverty right there. Um, how about this? You ever seen a tent village? You ever seen a tent village? Who has? Boy, they, they're dramatic, aren't they? I've seen a lot of them. And, um, you know, they look like that and often much worse. It's not like some you know, wonderful refugee thing set up, set up uh, in, a, in an emergency situation after a tsunami or something. I mean, you're talking about time to go get the water and walk it back. I mean, that is the kind of desperation um, that, that this woman is going through. Um, so I, I, the Bible's got good news for you. And here's the good news. It's that God hears and helps the hopeless. That's what this story tells us. It's the kind of the anchor point here um, that God has a heart for the desperate. So let's look at it together, and uh, we have four points today. The first one is a reasonable complaint. Look at verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, "'Your servant, my husband, is dead.'" And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his, his slaves. Now, as I pointed out in the past, women in the ancient world um, did not have the same benefits that we have in our comfortable uh, culture. Um, there was not running water. I mean, imagine raising children um, and changing diapers without running water in your house or a washing machine or a dishwasher um, or electricity. Um, How about um, an oven that's easy to use? You just go, the oven comes on. You don't have to go get the firewood, light the fire an hour beforehand and and stoke it and all that. I mean, imagine all that. Um, How about hygiene products? How about mammograms? There were no mammograms. How about mani-pedis? There were no mani-pedis. I mean, just imagine uh, being a lady back then and your husband dies and the, the, two, the two folks that could help you are your sons, but they're about to be taken away by the creditors and put into slavery. Now, the Bible's reporting that, not condoning it. It's just her reality. Now be, imagine what that's like. Imagine what it is to not be safe um, and when a, when a family needed to eat back then, I mean, an animal was killed or, or uh, some grain was ground when clothes needed to be washed, you didn't just put them in a machine and push a button and put some soap in it. You had to drag them down to the river and then slap them on the rocks and then wring them out and then carry the heavy, wet clothes back up. Can you imagine what a hard life that would be? Very hard. Very hard. Um, and also the status of a woman was very low in those days so that when someone's husband died, there was no insurance policy. She didn't have a master's degree to fall back on and a nice uh, used Honda Accord. I mean, th- that woman, you see that grinding poverty that I showed you in those pictures. That is this woman's situation. Grinding, scary despondency. And she cries out. Now notice something else, ladies and gentlemen, um, about her desperation, In verse one, it says, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. All right, so get it. She was married to a prophet. Now, he's a nameless prophet, but he is a prophet of the Old Testament. A prophet of the Old Testament had the oracles of God. A prophet of the Old Testament was the mouthpiece of God, a servant of God. And I understand a little bit what that's like to be a servant of God. He dies. So she's like, hey, hey, Elisha. The prophet Elisha, by the way, Elisha just came on the scene. I mean, if you go back here, Elijah's still alive. Elijah's still alive. He dies halfway through the second chapter, and here we are. Elisha's taken over. She cries out to the new guy, Elisha, and she says, hey, my husband was a prophet too. Now he's dead. My two children are going to be taken away from me, and I'm going to be left absolutely desolate with no way to live. She cries out to Elisha. Her husband was a prophet. He revered the Lord. He was a servant. He revered the Lord, NIV. And, uh, you know, there was this idol-worshiping God-rejecting climate and culture, and here you've got this guy who lives in a life, and occupation of sacrifice to God, and he's taken away from his wife. And you can almost sense a little annoyance in the woman's plea. She says, hey, uh, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And you can feel her plight a little bit, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like God we were just trying to be faithful and my husband was taken away from me and now i'm alone I and mean, she cries out i mean it's 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 problem after problem loss after loss and here she cries out now how do we apply all this to our lives i think we can apply it this way that even in the middle of helplessness even in the middle of hurt even in the middle of fear Uh, And even in, perhaps in in the middle of an irritation, not understanding why God's done what he's done, even in the midst of that, you know what she knows she can do? Cry out. She knows she can cry out to this God. Now, she doesn't have a wish list for God. She just throws herself into his hands and notice the posture of heart too. Um, I just love this. She expects to be heard. You know, when she cries out to Elisha, She's not like, hey, dude, can you help me? She knows she was married to a prophet of the Lord. She knows that when she cries out to God's prophet, that she's in essence crying out to God himself. She knows who Elisha is. That's why she's approaching him. She's a woman of faith who exercises her faith and goes to the mouthpiece that God has sent, Elisha. So when she cries out to Elisha, she's actually crying out to God and she expects that God will hear her. Now, if you've been with me for any length of time, you know that I love to harp on um, our arrogance, um, especially, especially a non-Christian arrogance that's, that just expects that God will hear, that God will ignore, that God is this and God is that, and I define him this way and I define him that way. I mean, it's just ridiculous to think that uh, we can define our creator. But as believers. Um, we can know that God will hear us because of what he's accomplished for us. And that's, that's her situation. She expects that God will hear her uh, because she has faith in this God. And um, he, he, you know, she, he, he bids us come and she knows that. One last thing about this, and, and we'll, we'll close up this point. Um, she, she's got a story, she's got a heart, she's got a request, she's got an attitude for God's deliverance. She was married to a prophet. She's this living illustration. And uh, what was her name again? Uh, let me, hang on a second. Uh, her name was, um, oh, she's nameless. And what was her husband's name again? Uh, oh yeah, he, he's nameless too. Nameless people. He's nameless and gone She's nameless and alone. And um, you know what we can take away from that is that the story's not about her. The story's about what God is doing in her life. And I mean, you just think about it. Don't take any offense, ladies, that she's a a nameless woman in the Bible. Never take offense over anybody who's nameless in the Bible. It's not their story. It's God's story scooping them up, and it glorifies God. And I just love that she's nameless. I I think it it just... uh, teaches us that God remembers this woman's life. He remembers the small and the helpless. That's something for you to remember too, that God remembers the small and the helpless. When you're despondent, when you feel despair, when you feel hopelessness, God understands you and you don't have to feel like you're alone in Christ. All right, second point. God moves in surprisingly personal ways. Um, Look at verse two. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Now at this point, it's very easy to get all jacked up about oil. In fact, I would, you know, every time there's a room this big, there's like three people that are like, Ooh, oil. I know what that is. It's the Holy spirit. Oil. Oil represents the Holy Spirit. So, so there it is. And you know, a, a preacher. This has been mangled many a time, where a preacher goes, whoa, that's the Holy Spirit, the oil. Oh, and the 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 Holy Spirit was flowing, and uh, flowing in her life, and flowing in the house. And and you know, that's great. Except, what do you do with verse seven? Um, Elisha says, uh, "Go sell the oil and pay your debts." Is she selling the Holy Spirit? I mean, see how cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs that can get right away Um, if you just don't go, oh, maybe it's just some oil in the house and it's just part of the story, okay? So don't don't try to over-spiritualize the thing or uh, import some kind of meaning on it. Um, Accept that there's nothing here but a little oil. Uh, The point is that uh, she's hopeless. It's not that she's sitting on a bunch of magic beans that she hadn't discovered yet. She's hopeless and all she's got is this little bit of oil. But to the point again, God moves in surprisingly personal ways. Um, Verse two, what shall I do for you? What do you have in the house? She says, well, I got this oil. And in verse three, he says, well, I'll tell you what. Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty ones, and as many as you can get, not too few. I mean, get a bunch of them. Empty vessels from all your neighbors. Go borrow them, and then go in the house, shut the door behind you uh, and, and your sons and pour into all these vessels and so on. And she does this. Well, what's so cool about that, I think, is the one thing she's got, God uses. What do you have? Not much. I got some oil. <laughs> that's what she's got. And uh, that's the thing that God uses. And so what does she have? What, you know? I, as I was reading the story, I was like, you know, she doesn't have much, but she's got this. And you know what this is? One little blessing. <laughs> it's at least one little blessing. And God takes that blessing And he magnifies it. He uses it. Uh, And it's at least a reminder, uh, an important one, to uh, have a spirit of gratitude toward the little things in your life. Um, That was a blessing too. She didn't have much, but she did have a blessing. Tell you one other cool thing about this. Um, God... Seems to work in just these deeply personal ways. And um, to cite Jesus a couple times, in Mark chapter 8, um, it says that people brought to Jesus a blind man and they begged Jesus to touch the blind man with the assumption that he's going to heal this blind man. So they, they bring a blind man to Jesus and they just think that if Jesus touches him, he can heal him. They, they believe that. Well, you know what Jesus does, right? He spits. On the ground, makes a little mud, and he touches the guy's eyes. So just imagine, you're blind, and uh, you're before this, this Jesus you've heard of, and of course have never seen, and you can't see him in front of you, and, uh, and he, he knows your problem. You know how you know he knows your problem? He touches, he touches the point of the problem. I mean, it's just so intimate. Uh, I'm going to fix you, me, the one talking to you, the one touching you, and I'm going to fix you here. Now, Jesus doesn't have to do that. I mean, in uh, in uh, just of in chapter four, he says, "Peace be still and the water still." He just speaks, but here he touches the guy. And how about when uh, Jesus comes to uh, a leper comes to Jesus in early Mark? A leper comes to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling to him, "If you are willing, you can make me clean." I mean, I love that story. If you are willing, you can make me clean. You know what Jesus says? "I am willing." And you know what Jesus does? He touches the leper. I mean, this guy hasn't felt human touch since his illness. All he's known is unclean, unclean, and no one can come near him. And Jesus touches him. Can you imagine? I mean, that's the way this personal God likes to save, it seems, in the Bible. And that's what's happening with this woman, too. She's got a a point of need and God goes, you know what? I'm gonna meet that need and I'm gonna do it in a deeply personal way. What do you have in the house there? Oil? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna use that for you. Touches her at a point of need, uh, takes a blessing and maximizes it. I just love that. Application for you. Uh, Do you have almost nothing? Uh, You know, when your life breaks down and when you're full of, heartache, and even if you have a nice house and nice stuff and all that, uh, boy, it becomes worthless pretty quickly uh, when you get a bad medical report, doesn't it? All your stuff, its value goes, <sharp inhale> um, you got almost nothing. Uh, maybe it's the perfect place to start. And God loves to work with people who have nothing. He has done it with people like Moses and David and Gideon, um, and he's done it with uh, places like... Uh, poor little old Jerusalem and poor little old Nazareth. He's done it with things like bread and fish and oil. And why does God take little things and use them magnificently in people's lives? You know why? Because it shows who is actually doing the redemptive work. All right. Third point, God dignifies our faith and us. Um, Now, on the one hand, In this story, it says that she uh, has to go outside and borrow vessels from all the neighbors. So, hey, uh, I know this is kind of a crazy request, but my sons and I are asking if you have any empty vessel, can we uh, borrow it? I mean, I don't care if it's a cup or a plate or a vase or whatever you got, anything that will hold liquid. Her sons are doing it too. They're getting everything they can get from all their neighbors and bringing it over. And uh, so, on the one hand, there is a public act of faith. I mean, in, in in a way, she's confessing with her mouth that she trusts this God all right? But notice how then God meets her in a very private way. She's instructed in verse four uh, to go in and shut the door behind her. And her sons uh, are to pour all the oil in the vessels when one is full set it aside, another one's full set it aside, another one full set it aside. When you run out of stuff to hold it, the oil's going to stop flowing, she finds out. But isn't it kind of cool that that she's sent in with her sons, the door closes, and God does this great work in the privacy of her house. And there's a lesson for us in that too. You know, we, we tend to um, look for giant <laughs> kind of events. We, we, it's, it's, it's awesome to see God work in magnificent uh, ways with lots of fireworks and all that kind of stuff. And, and He does do that. Um, he does do that. But uh, most of the time, God works in very private ways ways. Most of the time he works in the recesses of our hearts. He works uh, secretly in us. His spirit teaches us things. I mean, do you ever read the Bible uh, or, or you're praying and you're praying and, and in the middle of a sentence you go, yes, Lord. <laughs> you ever done that? You're reading the Bible and, and you see something and you go, oh, yes, Lord. Yes, indeed. Thank you. I mean, the Lord teaches something to your soul and he does it in a very private and intimate way and we see that happening here too. Um, you know, um, last week, Chris, uh, Luke and Landon Ditto and I had to go to, uh, got to go, had to go, got to go to Presbytery with Dr. Young and which is basically a meeting from 8.30 to five that um, moves real slow and uh, <laughs> And Dr. Young, it gives me great delight to introduce. You have to introduce your guests and all that stuff. And, uh, and it, what we had to do was get up there and tell, give our testimony and talk about our calling. Oh, this is kind of cool too. You know, my, you know, of course I look completely homeless. I'm up there just, you know, my keys around my neck on a string and I brought my cane even because I, I knew I was gonna have to stand. So I just look like I'm about to fall apart. And this is not in my notes, by the way. But... Um, I said, I said. Here's how I ended my thing. I said, if I'm not called to this work, uh, after all this time, you need to get me to a mental hospital right away. And I handed the microphone. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but what was the point? Oh, the point was, the point was, you know, when when Landon Nitto's like. Let me give you my testimony. I grew up at Kirby Woods Baptist Church and I've known the Lord as my Savior uh, as long as I can remember. And I don't have an exact date that I can pinpoint because all I've ever known is believing in, in the Lord Jesus. You know, um, that's an exciting testimony, right? But you should have seen the room when Chris Luke said, cocaine overdose. When you say cocaine overdose, people are like, hot dog, we got a hot one. Lay it on. this is gonna be a good story. And I'm telling you, Landon Ditto's conversion is every bit as bombastic and exciting and magnificent. It just took place in a quiet way. Most of the time, God works in a quiet way. I think that's, that's basically uh, the, the point I'm trying to, to get to you. All right, our last point is this. God tends to involve those he helps. Um, verse three through seven and Elisha says, go get some vessels, empty vessels are not too few, uh, shut the door behind you, fill them up. Uh, when one's empty, keep the oil pouring, keep the oil pouring, keep the oil pouring. And when the vessels were full, it says in verse six, um, she says, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another and the oil stopped flowing. Now um, there's a great lesson in, in that for us. And one of those lessons is that God often involves us in... Um, in his dealings with us, all right? So I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, Christian, uh, lay it on me, God, deliver me, rescue me. And um, I, I don't think that God often does it that way. I mean, sometimes he does, but I think he involves us and, and he engages with us and he has us do things. And I think that's part of his sanctifying work. In fact, there's a, a good little book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something, and it's, it's, it's not a bad book. I mean, if you're ever one of these people who's like, oh, I got this big decision to make and I need to pray about it. How do I know I'm making the right decision? And what should I do? And should I wait? And what should I do? And how do you know that you're making the right decision? Um, it's a very good book. It's about this thick. You ought to go get it. Um, just do something. Um, often God takes our um, activities and involves us in his deliverance. Trusting is not... Uh, just sitting there like a slob. And uh, it's true that sometimes all we can do is groan. It's true. Um, but God's deliverance is never to circumvent our faith. It's to deepen us. And God likes to engage with us. All right, last thing on this, and uh, we'll we'll bring it on home. Um, a, a common and just poor um, handling of this passage takes place over and over and over again, and um, I'm going to give you an example of it in this in this book. This is a, I mean, this is an otherwise good little commentary. It's a great little commentary series. Um, this University Press Tyndale. I've got all these books, the whole Bible. I've got a book on every. It's it's good. But listen, what this guy says, it makes me so. I can't tell you how angry this makes me. He says. Um, The quantity of oil was only limited by the woman's lack of faith in failing to ask for more empty jars. Right! Who said that? I'm telling you. I'm like, what is wrong with you? I mean, she is a woman of faith. That's the point. She engages with God. She cries out to his prophet. God delivers her. And he says, oh, her lack of faith, she didn't get, uh, maybe she's poor. Maybe she got every vessel from all her neighbors she could possibly get. Oh, they ran out. She should have got more vessels. Oh, well, there was no Ikea nearby. Sorry. It just makes me so mad. Um, the, the text implies that she acted in obedience and the jars just happened to run out. They had to run out sometime. And further, guess what? Jackpot. You know why? Verse seven. She came and told the man of God, and he said, triple triple whammy. Go sell the oil. So now she's in biz. Sell the oil. Pay your debts. Wow, there's enough to pay off the creditor. And there's enough left over for her and her sons to live on. Now, what kind of ignoramus could not see that? It's a win. God does deliver. It's not she ran out of faith and didn't get enough pots. Ridiculous. Anyway, all that to say, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is a, a humble little story. I mean, it's a tiny little story in the midst of giant, long uh, hunks of historical narrative, and in the middle of it pops out this story of this woman who's desolate, lonely and in deep trouble. And in the middle of all this I mean, first and second kings, first and second Sam, you get this big block, and here's her little story. And God deals with her so mercifully and powerfully. And, and, and thousands of years later, we're reading uh, it and, and worshiping this same God. Uh, God hears and helps the homeless. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. Let's pray. Our Father, it is uh, no small thing that you hear us. And we know that sin is the, the destroyer of fellowship and communication with you. But our Lord Jesus in his righteousness, the righteousness of God, has been applied to our accounts so that we are acceptable in your sight and you do hear and you do respond and you are a real help for the hopeless. So I pray that this people would be encouraged by that this morning, Lord. I pray that we would remember that uh, our little stories, uh, sometimes forgotten, sometimes isolated in the midst of a flurry of activity, uh, our stories, our concerns our tears are very important to you and you do intercede and help. We, we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day, y'all. So can I expect to see a whole set of Tyndale commentaries on G-Bagys? No, there, it's a good series. It's just...